Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, this month the Lincoln Project is going to be dedicating itself and our energy to making sure that Americans across the country know the good job that Joe Biden is doing on behalf of the American people and on behalf of the United States. I hope you'll tune in to our work and share the content and materials we're putting out with your friends and neighbors. Guys, the next 14 months are as crucial a time as we've seen in our living memory. Go to lincolnproject.us or jointheunion.us to get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by television star turned crypto critic Ben McKenzie. You may know Ben from his roles in The O.C., Southland, and Gotham, but that's not why he's here today. About two years ago, he teamed up with journalist Jacob Silverman to write the book Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, which is available wherever fine books are sold. He also recently testified before the U.S. Congress as a witness in a Senate Banking Committee hearing on cryptocurrency and the collapse of the FTX crypto exchange. Today, he's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me, Reid. All right, so there is so much that's in this, but I, I made a note that I wanted to start the conversation with. It was one of your sources. It was the guy you met at the country club. He said, quote, For me, it's all obvious. Give me one legitimate use for crypto. Give me one thing you can use crypto for. I just don't see it, and no one can tell me anything. It seems like uh, you wrote about 295 pages, but I think that guy might have summed it up in you know just a couple of sentences. <laughs> yeah, I think he pretty much nailed it. That was John Reed Stark, who is, uh-oh, for all the libertarians out there, he used to work at the SEC, but he's a libertarian himself. Yes, ah, the irony. So yeah, John, lovely guy. Jacob and I, the journalist that I teamed up with, had you know come across his radar fairly early on, or he'd come across ours, and so we were playing tennis with John. It was two against one, and he was just beating the heck out of us. And John was just throwing off these truth bombs. But John's perspective was so interesting because so he was at the SEC. He's not there now, but he used to head up the Office of Internet Enforcement. He actually started that office, so he was really familiar with all sorts of scams under the SEC's purview, which is obviously securities. And he's like, they're just running all the same scams. They're just changing the words. They're just saying it's a coin or a token or whatever. They're saying, no, it can't. It's not a security. It's, you know, it's the future of finance. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You noted the Dutch tool craze, the idea of alchemy turning lead into gold, all of these throughout, you know, human history, right? Get rich quick schemes. And this one just had a modern name, a bunch of unique, quirky, it turns out pretty dark characters. And ultimately it was, and maybe it is just like everything else, which was, you know, it was too good to be true. And for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of commercial investors, you know, people just retail investors, maybe I should say, it has been. So the person whose work has influenced me the most is Robert Schiller you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist who's written about how economic narratives form and their response to real events. So the subprime crisis created this understandable mistrust of banks and legacy financial institutions and our regulated financial system, which we all know is deeply flawed. And crypto was born in the wake of that. The Bitcoin white paper, which came out in October of 2008, really started this whole movement. But crypto was really small until at least 2016, 2017, and then it exploded during the pandemic as people were at home, they had pandemic stimulus checks, they had access to credit in the form of loans. And historically speaking, when there's easy money out there, people gamble with it. They take on extraordinary risk. They try to make money off of the money that they have. Nothing wrong with that. But some of the things they invest in are truly innovative and some of them are fraud. And I think with crypto, you're, you're seeing the latter. It was interesting. I remember two years ago sitting in an office space we don't have anymore and watching, I think it was CNBC because it was, I think, one of the two channels this television got because our cable was screwy. And it was sort of the height of the NFT craze. And I was like, now, you know, Ben, I don't have the kind of degree you have. I went to the University of Texas, which is a great institution, but I'm a poli sci guy, right? Math is not my I friend. 
Don't slag off UT. I love UT. From Austin, my hometown. Come on. No, no, no. Look, it's a much smarter school than I ever was. But, you know, I was like, this seems like just too much money sloshing around looking for something to do. Is it just that simple sometimes? It really is. And you are made to think you're the fool because you don't get it. They're trying to do that on purpose, trying to give you FOMO. Fear of missing out. We used to call it greed. It's just straight up greed, right? Ever you see somebody else getting rich, you want to get rich too. It's totally understandable. But you think you're crazy. And I remember going down this crypto rabbit hole in 2021 when a buddy of mine said you should buy Bitcoin. And I thought about it, but he had given me terrible financial advice before. And so I said, I love Dave, but that's actually a counter indicator that could, there's something else could be going on here. Anyway, I remember going down the rabbit hole and thinking after only a few months, like none of this adds up. There's so many red flags for fraud, but it's one thing to think that privately. And it's another thing to go public with it. And so I was really debating whether it was worth it for me to speak out about this. And I was reading my daughter, Frances, who was six at the time. I was reading her The Emperor's New Clothes, which is just the perfect story for this because, you know, I remember the gist of the story, but I'd forgotten that the tailor's trick is just an appeal to ego and status worship. Only the smartest people, only the people of highest station can perceive these imaginary clothes we weave. And so adult after adult is tricked into believing something for the simplest reason of all, they don't want to look stupid. And the second thing is that at the end of the story is the emperor gallivants through town naked. It's a child who calls out the lie. The only one brave enough to speak up and be truthful is to someone who doesn't know they're being brave or just telling the truth. I saw myself as that child. I was like, well, I got to stand up here. This is ridiculous. Right. And I do want to come back to this sort of Cassandra slash truth teller role, not only in this, but also sort of in our broader society, for lack of a better way to put it. But you know, I used to work for this organization, Ben, in 2014, 2015, maybe even as early as 2013, in the wake of the 2012 loss for Mitt Romney, right? What did Republicans, because back then I was a Republican, what did Republicans needed to do better? And this was really sort of a libertarian, Republican-ish thing, like Rand Paul at the time, right? Rand Paul of 2013 was sort of, you know, somebody that drew a lot of crowds. And I remember we had this conference in San Francisco. and this is one of those things a little bit when you're sort of witness to history and you have no idea what, you know, you're just this bystander to hit this history. But there were all these Bitcoin people there. And I had no idea, Ben, what it was. I didn't understand it. They were all very weird people. But the two other groups I met at that same conference were the Cambridge Analytica people who ended up doing all this stuff with Facebook to help Trump. And I was like, I've been in politics a long time. I've never heard of you. Where did you come from? And Steve Bannon and his goons, right? All at the same place at the same time. And if I had known better, I would have shaken everybody and go, you don't know what's going to happen. But even as far back as then, again, I'm not a financial guy, but I couldn't understand it. So it's money, but it's not money. It's blockchain. And then they'd have panel discussions. And this was a bunch of tech guys who were, you know, really behind this thing. And I didn't understand any of it. You know, your experience is completely the norm. It's absolutely the 80 plus percent of the country that didn't buy crypto. Whenever I ask them what they think about it, they almost always say the same thing, which is, it seems complicated, but also kind of scammy. And I go, no, no, you got it. I mean, it's scammy. It's not that really that complicated, but I can break that down. I mean, so a blockchain is just a ledger. It's just a way of storing information, recording transactions. It's been around for 30 years. Blockchain goes back to at least 1991. It wasn't intended for fraud or anything. I think it was just, you know, cryptographers and computer scientists experimenting with stuff. And maybe blockchain will have a use case besides these things they call currencies that, as you point out, are not currencies. But for right now, blockchain's only real use cases thus far after 30 years are gambling, which is what crypto really is. It's like gambling in an unlicensed casino because these are zero-sum games. They're not tied to any real-world asset. It's not like investing in the stock market. It's either gambling or it's crime, right? I mean, the pseudonymity of the blockchain, the fact that your identity is obscured is helpful, right? You can pass value instantaneously overseas without giving away who you are. It's not anonymous and the criminals are sort of, as law enforcement's catching up, the criminals are becoming, I think, less enthralled with crypto as a way of scamming money because at the end of the day, ironically enough, the blockchain, if you figure out who owns what, you have their entire history. Like you get their entire, it's like finding somebody's credit card bills for their entire life. So 
you're noticing a lot of crypto enforcement, a lot of people, you know, getting charged with crimes. And it's because lawmakers and regulators and even law enforcement were a little behind the curve in terms of catching up to it. Well, and let's turn to the politics of it. I want to get to Sam Bankman Fried, and I refuse to call him SBF because he does not deserve like a moniker, right? Like he's not JFK. He's not FDR, right? No, his name is Sam Bankman Fried, and I will continue to call him that. But, you know, it's so funny. I, I was writing this down as I was reading your book. I wrote to myself, in D.C., if your money is green, they don't care what you do. And in D.C., if you're willing to take their money, they don't care what else you do, vote for or anything else. I mean, look, there's a million of these examples, but this seemed to be so perfect. You know, Bangman Fried talks about how he gave, you know, 30 some million dollars to Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe even more because God knows with 501c4s and everything else, what else he did. You know, his partner gave 25 million to the Republicans. And these were not no name members of either party. These were well thought of Republicans and Democrats. And I had a woman named Madison Horn on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she's in cybersecurity. I said, you know, I remember back to when Zuckerberg would go before Congress or any, you know, any of the tech guys, and they had clearly no idea how any of this worked, but they were just shoveling money and throwing lobbyists at them. And that equaled expertise. Yeah. And all you're really trying to do, look, you'd love to get favorable legislation through to protect your industry. You see AI is trying to do that now. But all you're really trying to do is buy time to be able to create enough gray area where you can keep operating. And so Sam threw, I think it's allegedly $100 million overall into this straw donor scheme where he was giving some of it publicly. He was behind the Democrats, but privately he was alleged to have been giving you know, funneling money that where did the money come from? His customers, allegedly, to, you know, super PACs and Republicans. And he was given to both sides because that's how you get stuff done in Washington. And he was finding success. There was a bill at the CFTC, at the Commodities Future Trading Commission, that was affectionately known as Sam's bill. And they were trying to get that through Congress. And they might well have if his empire hadn't fallen apart so quickly. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other part, too, is that the idea here that the revolving door, which really isn't even revolving anymore, it's really just like one of those grocery store doors stuck open, you know, and people have sort of one foot outside the store and one foot inside the store, and they just sort of decide what side of the threshold they're going to stand on. But again, these were people who, even after Bankman Freed's fall, last fall, fall of 22, as we're recording this, you know, we're still trying to find a way. And I think back in, in Ben, you've probably been in even more airports than I have is, you know, sitting at the Sky Club like a JFK and there's just nothing but wall to wall crypto ads on CNN. I mean, they don't run a lot of Fox, but CNN or MSNBC. Right. And, you know, you mentioned you and your, your co-author mentioned all the ads at the Super Bowl and everything else, because like we see now with DraftKings or any of this other stuff, they have to draw people into the casino. And they have to specifically draw men in, like in the height of crypto. Why were it was every commercial either online gambling or crypto? Because that's who gambles, men. <laughs> we really do. We have this thing. I went down this whole rabbit hole of, of studying gambling addiction, which is an addiction that we don't talk about much because it's guys, you know, mainly, and we're prideful. And advertising on sports is the cheapest, most effective way to reach young men right? What are they doing? They're watching live games. They now have the in-game betting. So you're like watching to see if somebody, it's a free throw or whatever. And then you throw crypto in there and crypto is pitched as, not pitched as gambling. It's pitched as like, it's an investment. You're going to build generational wealth, the future of money, which is hilarious because it's the past of money, but we can go into that. So, you know, it's basically just pitched as sort of a better version of gambling, right? Like it's just going to make everybody rich. But of course, that can't possibly be true. And people are figuring it out now. But I think the psychological piece of the male targeting of this or the targeting of men is important too, which is it's also sticking it to the man. And also, it's also you're stupid if you don't do it. Remember Matt Damon's ad where he's like, fortune favors the bold. You know, he's like gesturing to Marco Polo or whatever. And you're like, you know, don't be a pussy, invest in crypto. And it's like, come on, dude, really? That's the angle that's so disingenuous, right? Like you're just, you're obviously, it's such a dumb psychological trick, but it works so well. We all have self-doubt. I have plenty of self-doubt. You think, well, maybe I don't get it, right? Or Larry David, who's wrong about the wheel and wrong about the light bulb and wrong about all that stuff. He says, don't get a crypto. But, you know, the thing I was disappointed with in the celebrities is they obviously didn't do their due diligence. You know, these are obviously financial products of some kind. 
and you aren't a licensed financial advisor, so you shouldn't be given financial advice, which is what you were doing effectively. And so you can justify it, you can wrap it up, but like, it's pretty simple, man. You got paid in real dollars to convince people to take their real dollars and turn them into something else. Like, don't tell me, you know, you were born on a day, but you weren't born yesterday. Did it seem too easy? That's your clue that it probably wasn't on the up and up. And they got bad advice and their agents and their managers and their lawyers should also bear responsibility. But whether or not you are found guilty in a court of law, ethically, morally, you shouldn't have done it. And you know you shouldn't have done it. So just like, don't do it again and cop to it. You know, just go, hey, man, I screwed up, you know, but I'm assuming now they're not doing that because their lawyers are advising them against it. Now, is it true? I heard a story and I don't remember who told me this that they actually approached Taylor Swift and her people looked at it for like 10 minutes and were like, get the hell away from us? Well, unfortunately, it's not as clear as that, apparently. Apparently, that was the story that was being told by Taylor's camp, that she identified them as securities and was like, isn't that securities fraud? To which I was like, wow, Taylor Swift, didn't know I could love you more. (laughs) Apparently, it was Sam who ultimately said no, maybe because he was running out of money. I don't know. The truth is, it's very gray there. So- Look, I love Taylor Swift, still a fan. My seven-year-old daughter would be mortified if I uh, if I criticized her, so I'm going to stay away from that. Yeah. No, I was just curious because it seems that, you know, at this point, right in this moment, right, she's the biggest brand name there is. I took my daughters to see her, and it was an incredible show, but I, I found that interesting because she would have been a coup of all coups for them because that would have brought in an entirely different demographic. Yeah, that certainly would have been their attempt. I mean, you know, look, 15, 16% of the American public, the adult American public bought crypto. So 40 to 50 million Americans. If you look at the polling, it's predominantly men. It's about two to one. And it's predominantly young men. 42% of men 18 to 29 bought, used, purchased cryptocurrency. So that's almost half of young men. So I draw it on the book, but like the parallels to, do you remember online poker in the 2000s? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm in my 40s and that was really in its heyday when I first started making money on things like the OC. And funnily enough, like the same guys that wanted to get me into crypto were into online poker. I remember telling them the same thing back then. I go, guys, where's the real money going? Like you're connecting your bank account to these companies were headquartered in the Caribbean. And eventually the feds had to shut them down. And they shut them down on what's called Black Friday in, a, in online poker land. And they shut them down because they were violating the law, but also because they were stealing their customers. Some of them were stealing their customers' money, right? One of them had a secret God mode where insiders could see the other players' cards. And one of those guys, one of the lawyers for that company, works at Tether, the big stablecoin company. So let's talk about a couple of things. One is no one knows. There's a name associated, right? But nobody knows who invented the Bitcoin, right? Yep. Nobody knows who released the white paper, which is the intellectual foundation of crypto. It called himself Satoshi Nakamoto, and it was released online pretty you know, unceremoniously. Obviously, no one really paid it much attention in October 2008. But yeah, we don't know who created it. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So then, you know, this whole idea of being post-bank, post-regulation, you know, decentralized and transparent, it's really none of those things. None of them. It's the opposite of all of them. It's both very opaque. It's very difficult to know where your real money is going because you'll send it somewhere. And then, you know, what Sam's alleged to have done is running through a whole slew of limited liability corporations or whatever they were, different shell companies. So it's extremely opaque, extremely centralized. There's only really a handful of people in crypto that matter. Sam was one. CZ of Binance. Binance is the biggest exchange, has always been the biggest exchange, even bigger than FTX. So even though Sam got headlines, Binance is huge. It still does half the volume in all of crypto. So CZ of Binance, big player. There's a few others. But I remember early on in my, uh, in my reporting, I was talking to this source who was anonymous at the time to me. He's telling me that this whole thing is a cartel run by like half a dozen guys. 
And at the time it's worth like $3 trillion. And I'm going, all right, look, I'm skeptical, but there's no way that can be true. That's crazy. That's totally crazy. Well, I think the American economy is $14 trillion. Yeah. So. Well, well, the numbers <laughs> in crypto are all complete baloney. I mean, right. there was never $3 trillion. Like, give me a break. There was never even close to $3 trillion in there. But on paper, it was three or on, on screen, it was $3 trillion. But so I, I discounted that. But then what happened? You cut to Sam Bankman-Fried getting arrested. He was going to testify the day before or the, that day for the, the House remotely. And his congressional testimony leaked. And in his congressional testimony, there's a screenshot, alleged screenshot from a secret signal chat group of those same dudes, CZ, Sam, the small players, and it's called exchange coordination. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> Give me a break. Like, what do you think? Yeah, right. They're colluding, right? It's like when, when FDR like, sat in the White House and set the gold standard, right? Like, what do we think gold's worth today? I don't know. Sure. I mean, there's a great quote. I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but there's a great quote from Adam Smith about, you know, when men of a business gather to socialize, you know, they're, if there's no rules or regulations, they're going to be up to no good. And if they can get away with it, which in crypto they could have for a while, there was really nothing. The way I look at it, you know, economists look at incentive structures, it was kind of like subprime. There was really no incentive because 80% of the population ignored it, 10 to 15% bought it, but most people bought it at the height. There was really no incentive for people to look under the hood, right? There was really, you know what I mean? Like you either said, ah, I don't get it, it's a scam, or you bought in maybe in the middle, or you were a true diehard believer. If you were a true diehard believer, you probably bought it you know, five years ago, in which case on paper, on screen, you've made a ton of money. So of course you believe in it, but that doesn't make it true. It doesn't mean the rest of us should buy it. And you also use this expression, it's the number go up philosophy. And I thought about that because if you think back to really any panic, financial panic in human history, it's always predicated on the idea that like the value will go up forever. Right. And so let's stay within the last, say, quarter century. So in 2000, you have the tech bubble. Right. Everybody says, oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. And poof, disappears. And just as an aside, in 2001, I worked for a guy named Paul O'Neill at the Treasury Department. He was Treasury Secretary. And he had been he had been the CEO of Alcoa, huge, you know, aluminum concern. And we were talking about this because they were still dealing with some of the fallout. And he said, I never got anywhere near that stuff because I didn't understand it you know what I understand? And he held up an aluminum Coke can. And he goes, I understand this. And I was like, all right. And then in 2008, again, everything goes fine until the price doesn't go up. Everything's predicated on the price going up. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but you talk about, you know, what backs an asset. And, you know, in that case, you know, somebody said, remember, first and foremost, a house is a place to live, right? The ancillary benefit is that it goes up in value. You can borrow against it. You can pay down your mortgage. You can sell it for more than you bought it for. But the truth is, at the end of the day, like if the water doesn't turn on and the lights don't turn on and you can't pay the mortgage, it doesn't really matter. So then you get to this next piece, which is, again, get rich quick, very little, you know, do your own research as you reference so much, you know, dude, your fault should have done your own research, sort of blaming the victim goes is sort of a through line throughout this whole thing, especially these six or eight guys you're talking about. So tell us a little bit about how the Sam Bankman Freeds and the CZs and all these other people, um, the Misha, what's his name? Are they all just carnival barkers? Are they all just shit talkers or do they start to believe it? Oh, I think the best carnival barkers do believe it. I think that's what makes you a good showman is if you can kind of blend that or even believe it. So auditors use a thing called the fraud triangle to figure out sort of the three essential components for any fraud. The first is need or want, it's sometimes called. Need, it can arise from just greed. You just want to rip people off, but it can also arise from a mistake. You know, you hear about a trader, a rogue trader on some desk. He's like trading, you know, some obscure thing. The London whale. Yeah. And like, he makes a bad bet. He gets in, you know, out over his skis. He doesn't want to admit it. So he bets again, doubles down, he loses more. And the whole thing spirals out of control and he's arrested, you know, for losing billions of dollars on a desk that wasn't supposed to cover a fraction of that. So need sometimes arises from a mistake. And, and according to sort of what we're learning about Sam's case, that might have been, he was not a very good gambler, it doesn't seem. Like his company was actually losing money overall. They just got a huge line of credit from this company called Tether, the big stablecoin company. So there's need, and then there's opportunity, 
opportunity in crypto is limitless. Obviously, you can create your own fake money. And then there's rationalization. The last part of the fraud triangle is rationalization. And I think that's really kind of the thing I'm fascinated by as a storyteller and as someone who performs for a living is like my understanding of that, I think, has gotten a lot more flexible in the sense that I think it's not a you either completely believe it and you're not scamming people or you don't believe it and it's all a scam. It's a whole range there where at some times you're able to, in your darker moments, kind of admit, hey, this is pretty scammy and it's not on the up and up. That happens in crypto all the time. So many people told me that. I mean, some of them told me off the record I couldn't print it, but like, it's a joke because it's so obvious. But also they will justify it. At the same time, they'll try to justify it endlessly to you. And every time you bring up some counterpoint, they'll pivot to a new argument. So it becomes an exercise in really wanting to believe it for whatever reason you have. Well, listen, not to make this political for you, but like, sounds a lot like trying to talk to MAGA people from our perspective. You know, it's got this whole thing. And towards the end of the book, I'm reading ahead and then I want to come back because I, I, I found it fascinating. You said, but then as maxis, who are like the people who are true believers in this stuff, are want to do, they wandered off into wackadoodle land, painting conspiracies that Sam Bankman Freed was working with Biden to send money to Ukraine via crypto, right? Like, this is what happens. I mean, let's be clear, Ben, usually it comes down to the Jews, right? It's almost always right, the Jews' right. fault. But again, this is the thing is that this this weird confluence of young men, conspiracy theories, vaporware, fake money, you know, dreams of generational wealth and this kid in a Bahamian paradise with four of his idiot friends, right, playing video games all day. Like to a guy who plays video games all day, it must sound like, you know, have it on earth. That sounds great. You know. I get the appeal on a certain level, but the MAGA tieover is actually interesting because, of course, so much of MAGA is really a grift, right? It's Trump grifting his own followers. It's Bannon. You know, Trump announced an NFT line right at the end, right? It's like people were finally ignoring it. And you know what's funny is when we saw that, we said, this thing will sell out. These will sell like hotcakes. And people are like, oh, you're just making that up. Like, And what happened? They all sold. Yep. And so- I really think it's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering whether that's that's a subject of another book, like really looking at MAGA from just the grift, like ignore the politics. Politics is only a conduit to grift. It's really impressive how much there's a real significant tie over. And one of the reasons that I think it works so well is if you're in the movement, you're already, you know, ready to buy, right? Just value me. Just tell me I'm right. You know, just tell me things are my fault. Yeah. You're in the in group. Right. You're in the in group and therefore you're special. And like there's so much. Look, you're an actor by trade. You know, every human, though, plays the lead role in their own life. And you want to think that it's more than being an accountant or a guy who codes, you know, sitting on his couch while he's watching, you know, anime or whatever, because this is exciting. You're part of something and you're part of something and no one else is. And, you, you know, you reference how these guys always try and, quote unquote, apologize to their people after basically stealing their money, which is you're all part of a community. But the truth is, Ben, maybe not to get too philosophical, maybe part of the problem is that we don't have any community, so these guys are going looking for it, and they'll take it from people who live in Hong Kong or Dubai or wherever the hell it is, anywhere but their neighbor or some other human being who might give their life like validation and purpose. And not to really go down that rabbit hole and the bummer of it all, but that is increasingly our reality. For younger people, they spend so much of their time online, they don't actually physically know these people. Often they don't know them at all. They're interacting through pseudonyms. And yet they find connection to them because it's perhaps lacking in other ways. Well, that's the perfect setup to create a mark. It's just perfect. And I know it's painful for them. I'm sorry, but I got to speak out and speak truth to them. You know? And you see, it's also why they get so angry when somebody like me calls them out. You know, I get endless hate from on, on Twitter from crypto bros. Yeah, it's fun to make fun of them. But like, why are you so triggered by me just pointing out facts? Just like I interviewed these people. This is what they told me kind of stuff. It's because there's the suckers who might be mad because they believe it and they it's hard to cope. And then there's the scammers who have profited from it. So of course they don't want truth tellers out there. Of course they don't want me out there. And I mean, I'm really, you know, it's funny because like, they'll be like, oh, he's a has-been actor, he's this, that, and the other. 
And yet at the same time, you're super triggered by me. Well, pick a lane, bro. It's like I was giving my buddy a hard time. I go, listen, but tell me this. Is Joe Biden a doddering old man or is he a Marxist superhero? Like, you got to tell me which which is it? Because it can't be both. Right. It can't be both. But let's talk about a few things because you brought up things. One is the social media aspect of this, not only of the crypto bros, as you call them, but also of these founders and moguls, for lack of a better way to put it, who are trolling one another, trolling people like you who don't like them. And somebody said to me, you know, Twitter's not the real world, Ben, but it is real. It is. We discount it to our peril. Like if it's the way that people are communicating instantaneously globally, which even now I would argue with Elon almost completely messing it up, it still works well enough to facilitate some of that. People are moving to different platforms maybe and we'll see, but it just shows what need there is. It's so addictive. I mean, when it was working well, I have to say it was wonderful as a journalist and it still is useful as a journalist. Yeah. For politics, it was perfect because you always knew how to make sure if our main audience, aside from voters, was the political media, we all knew we were there together. And you're seeing other people, you're getting a ton of information very quickly, and you're seeing the story that others are telling immediately, right? So you get the talking points on either side very quickly. It's very helpful. As a reporter, I met so many great sources on there. I met Jacob Silberman, my co-author, and sometimes they want to talk to you as a, as a synonymous Twitter account. And okay, that's fine. I mean, that runs into certain journalistic situations where you can't quote them, you know, in articles and things like that. But on background, that can be really, really helpful. So I think the pseudonymity does, you know, run both ways. It's not just a negative. I originally thought it was like, oh, this is just obviously baloney. But I think the distinction really is the difference between that and the difference between giving your money to them, right? That's where it breaks down. Is like, if you're using it for your profession or this, that, the other, fine. It's when you hand them your money and they tell you we can make more money on it. That's obviously the essence of the grift. And as you go through so many of these things, and there's so many different names, tokens, exchanges that even as you and Jacob did a fabulous job of explaining it, it still sort of boggled my mind. But I think you just got to something about giving money, which is the money that people are giving, they're not giving a piece of paper, Ben, that says, reads money give me Bitcoin. They're giving US dollars, right? Fiat currency backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, which then these guys are taking or took and doing God knows what with. And I think this is the, I don't know if it's the funniest thing, the most ironic thing, maybe it's all of it is these guys wanted to create fake money to make real money and to make as much real money as they could. And also people like Sequoia and all these other people who are willing to give them billions of dollars because he could play a video game while he was on a Zoom with them. I'm just like, what's going on, you know, in Sand Hill Road? Like, what are they smoking? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. One of the great ironies of crypto is that all that the real players care about is the real stuff. They want your real money, man. Yeah, no, that's one of the ironies. The Sequoia stuff is hilarious. So, you know, the reference there is to Sam Bankman-Fried's trying to raise a billion dollars from venture capitalists, he's on the phone with Sequoia or a Zoom with Sequoia, and he's telling him like, FTX is going to change everything. It's going to, you're going to be able to, you know, not just trade crypto, but buy car insurance. I don't know. He's like spinning this elaborate story. It's the future of everything. But he keeps looking off to the side and, and doing something away from the screen. And they realize he's playing League of Legends while on the call. He's playing video game while on the call. And normies like us would say, well, I'm definitely not giving that dude my money. I mean, <laughs> right, like, right. I'm certainly not a billion. Like, you yeah. know, like, give me a break. But instead they go, he's so brilliant. We have to give him our money. It's the craziest. But that sells you the insanity of easy money, the insanity of venture capital in a way that it's like you're trying to hit home runs so you know you're going to strike out. It's like, who can tell me the most fabulous story, right? Maybe it'll be true. Maybe it won't. It really is kind of amazing. But I do think it, one of the things that's so helpful, which is, for, I think, really important in these days, is to remind all of us. I know we fetishize wealth, and I understand we all want to be rich. I get that. Nothing wrong with that. But we need to stop thinking that billionaires are smarter than us. We need to stop thinking that rich people, just de facto, just because they've made money, they are smart. That's not the same thing. There are a lot of American guys like you and me, Ben, college-educated successful. You live in Brooklyn, which I guess is a suburb of Manhattan. No offense to Brooklyn. 
you know, they went to college, they went to grad school, they have families, they have nice houses, their kids either go to a really good public school or more likely a private school. And so many of my friends, Ben, their favorite show is the All In podcast, right? Which is four hyper wealthy guys talking shit. One guy's getting married in Italy. They have a two hour conversation about another guy's whiskey collection. And these are who my friends are listening to. And I'm like, listen to Bill Burr. Like Bill Burr's much funnier first and much more like close to reality than any of these assholes ever could be, right? Yeah, I think we all want to escape, you know, and the allure of wealth and like imagining that we're going to be wealthy. But man, they just behave so badly. I mean, like they were joking about dumping their holdings in a crypto. I think it was Solana. And they were joking because, you know, the way this works is or worked is that, you know, there's always people behind these coin companies. Of course, they're not unique. There are still people behind writing these code. And so the people that would come up with a code come with a coin name and like basically some marketing materials around it because it's all kind of the same thing. And they go to, you know, VC firms or investors and they say, hey, we'll give you a bajillion of these coins for almost nothing and you get a great deal. And all you got to do is like, you got to get that number to go up, right? And if you flood the market with disingenuous marketing of, you know, it can be bought Twitter accounts, you know, that you're using to gen up support. It can be national television ads with, with the most famous people on earth. But as long as you can get that price up, then you've paid almost nothing for your coins. So you just dump them. And who's left holding the bag? Retail. I mean, that's how it works. Well, and that's one other thing that I saw here that I want to read, because this goes to sort of, I think, a larger issue that we've seen, not so much in the 2000 tech bubble, but certainly in 2008 and nine, thankfully it didn't get there here, which is the system was designed to insulate the people operating it from any consequences for the huge risks they took, which is obviously, what do you do? Privatize the gains, socialize the losses, right? I saw a cartoon the other day, you know, it's like everybody's a capitalist until until somebody comes for them and then they're the biggest socialists in the world. Well, there's that great quote that I put in one of the chapter titles, which is like, Capitalism without bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. You know, like if you believe in something, there have to be repercussions or we're living through what we are living through, which is a farce, right? Like banks collapse. So the three banks that collapse, here's a fun fact, the three banks that collapse, Silicon Valley, First Republic, and uh, whatchamacallit, they all had ties to crypto, right? Either directly or indirectly. And so when crypto was trying to get tied into banking, which is what it was trying to do the previous summer, that's why I was freaking out. Because I was like, they might get it. And if they get deeper into our banking sector, that could have been a hell of a lot worse. I mean, we bailed out those three banks. And by the way, there may be more to come. We'll see. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. But thank God it got cordoned off. And, you know, I hate to say it, but we probably needed to bail them out at that point or at least come up with some solution because otherwise it would have had a, a contagion effect on the whole system. But it never should have gotten there to begin with, right? Like you never should have been able to gamble with all this money. And to do what is effectively, in many cases, money laundering. So it's just funny, you know, back in the 2000 campaign, I was working for George W. Bush. I was with Dick Cheney at the time. So like I got them all covered, Ben. And we're in <laughs> Maine and um, we're doing this event in Portland, Maine. And it was called a victory event. We have these things because if you have a victory event, it's the RNC can pay for it because right? you put George W. Bush and then Ben McKenzie and Reed Galen, everybody across. And then and then the campaign doesn't have to pay for it because back then there were regulated funds. And the Secret Service agent goes, so tell me how this works. So the vice president guy is going to be here and it's really his event and all these other idiots are going to be on the stage. But then those guys pay for it instead of you. And we're like, yeah, he goes, you know, if this were politics, I'd be arresting you for money laundering. Right. <laughs> and, and he was right. I mean, and, and it's not an unusual thing. But I think that's the other part, you know, the attitude, too, of so many of these folks, you know, whether or not it's the hyper wealthy of the Sequoias or Musk, as we're now see him sort of decompensating in real time is they don't believe they're accountable to anybody. Yeah. They believe they truly above the law. And when you haven't had to suffer any consequences for your behavior up to this point, why wouldn't you believe that? You know, I wrote about crypto and I wrote about casino capitalism, which is the notion that we're turning everything into casino, which is not a good use of capital. Just obviously, we could put capital to basically any other use and it would be better than zero-sum games. But I also mentioned the golden age of fraud, because I think the golden age of fraud is really important for people to understand. You know, we elected a con man as president, and we think about 
the political repercussions of that, well, we forget the economic repercussions. The economic repercussions are pretty significant, maybe not as significant as the political, but they're a close second, which is that, you know, there really wasn't a lot of enforcement of white collar crime during Trump's presidency. And what there was, he tried to, you know, make it a vendetta against whoever had wronged him. Obviously, he wants to do that again if he's reelected. That is just awful effects on the rule of law. And the result is you see these bozos, you know, of course, they're cocky and they think you're going to get away with it. And by the way, most of them will. I mean, if history is any uh, indication, then, you know, Sam will go to jail probably. But like a lot of these other guys will get away with it. And I want to get to Bankman Freed in just a sec, but I think that's a really good point, which is like the reason why Republicans rail against the IRS is not because they're trying to protect average American men and women from the tax collector. It's because dark money groups, you know, guys like this have paid good money to make sure that the IRS stays a feebled organization, right? They've lowered tax rates and everything else. So that's not a surprise. So let's talk about Sam Bankman Freed. So you actually interviewed him. And you and Jacob do a very good job of illustrating, of showing, not telling. Really, he's an odd guy. And you ask him questions, and you, you referenced this earlier in our conversation, everything's about the future. He doesn't want to talk about the present. Everything has to be about the future. This is what it will do. This is what it could do. This is what it should do. And you're like, but what does it do now? And then he gets sort of, you know, fidgety, and then he's literally playing, speaking of fidgety, literally playing with a fidget spinner. So give us a sense of, of this guy. He's now sitting in pretrial detention, probably not far from you. Didn't appear to be a vegan, Ben, before he went into pretrial detention, just based on the looks of him. No offense to anybody. So tell us about this guy. Well, you know, it's really fascinating, right? When I interviewed him in July of last year, crypto had started to fall apart, but was still holding on. This thing called Terra Luna had blown up and, and crypto prices had crashed quite a lot. But he was being pitched as the JP Morgan of crypto, which is a reference to 1907 before we had a central bank and JP Morgan and his buddies had to kind of basically bail out the American financial system. And so he was going to come in and buy up all these failing crypto companies and make crypto safe for the average American. That was his pitch. That's why he was spending so much money on Capitol Hill, because if they could have gotten better access to the American retail public, that's the gold mine, as anybody knows. There's so much money out there. You don't need to take a lot. You just need to take a little from a lot of people. And they were having a lot of success with that. So Sam was you know, one of the 100 wealthiest people in the world. He was built up in all these ways to the point where even I was, I can realize now, kind of buying some of it. At least subconsciously, I was kind of more guarded in my questions than I would be now. But at that point, I had a lot of info and I had a lot of data. And I had just come from El Salvador, which is they're always talking about banking the unbanked and using crypto for remittances. And El Salvador was a disastrous experiment. Nobody was using it. It was being used for corruption and for crime. And I sat with Sam and I just asked him the questions, the basic questions I wanted. And to your point, it's fascinating. If you didn't know that he was some billionaire, what would you see? You'd see a twitchy guy, really twitchy, right? He has ADD, fine. But like, he's really nervous and twitchy, has trouble making eye contact. He's not cleanly dressed or, or anything. He's, you know, he's always wearing a t-shirt and cargo shorts. He's got all these red flags for fraud. If you didn't know that he was a billionaire, of course you'd think that he was like a, either a fraudster or potentially a degenerate gambler. I mean, he also looks like someone who might have a gambling addiction, right? Which is a lot of what is going on in crypto. But because, again, it's kind of emperor's new clothes, because of the hype cycle, because he had this money that he could spend to say, no, I'm, I'm not that. I'm best friends with Tom Brady. I'm, you know, Giselle's my ESG advisor. Like, I'm awesome. And a compliant business media. Oh, business media, you know, and media in general really needs to look, I mean, I, I don't think they will, but they ought to look themselves in the mirror. At least every reporter should. Because what happened, of course, and this is, I understand the economics, I understand how it gets there, but crypto gets validated as an asset class at some point because the number's going up. And then all of these major media publications set up a crypto desk to cover crypto. Well, okay, but who advertises on the crypto desk? Crypto companies. So of course you have to treat them with kid gloves, right? And for every good reporter out there who's doing good work, there's people who are just regurgitating press statements, who are just, you know, fawning, completely fawning. And then that's not even getting to the payola, which is a whole other thing that maybe I'll go down at some point, but there's an awful lot of that. You know, hey man, hey, hey, if you buy this crypto, you know, it's going to go up kind of a thing. And when that's all going up, it all works for them. It just doesn't work for the average person who's buying it. So before we get to the future of the crypto economy, let's finish on Sam Bankman-Fried. So 
Remember a few years, maybe it's even 10 years ago now, there was a guy named Ross Ulbricht. And Ross created the Silk Road. Remember the Silk Road on the dark web and a great documentary by Alex Winter on this. Great books too. And Ross Ulbricht went to prison forever for this. And they, you know, I think the theory is they were going to make an example of this guy. Like, don't ever do this again. Do you think, again, in your capacity as a reporter, as someone who's done the research on this, do you think the feds will try and put that on Sam Bankman-Fried? We're going to make an example out of this guy to make sure nobody in this country ever tries to do this again. Well, they're certainly compiling the pieces here. They have a strong case. They have, I think, three or four of his former colleagues who've turned state's witness against him. They've charged him with crimes that would, if he was convicted of all of them, would result in hundreds of years in prison. So they certainly can do that. And I think that they probably, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but they certainly have a strong, strong evidence here. I understand why they want to do that. I get it. But if that's, I want to say all that's happening, because there's a lot of other law enforcement that's happening. This other guy, Alex Vashensky, that I interviewed is also being charged with fraud by the SDNY. I hope that the American public doesn't just focus on Sam. He's an interesting story. You know, Michael Lewis is writing a book about him. It'll probably be interesting. But we need to not miss the forest for the trees here. The whole thing is predicated on a poor understanding of economics, economic history. And then you add the gambling and the criminal activity. We should really be asking ourselves, should this exist? If so, why? And if it is going to exist, shouldn't it be stringently regulated? Shouldn't it be regulated at least as much as our securities markets? Because if effectively all these cryptos are really just Ponzi schemes, the SEC is actually in charge of regulating Ponzi schemes, right? Those are investment contracts. They're just valueless investment contracts. Well, we need to give them the resources to do their job and to get rid of this stuff. Let's see what else is left. But my suspicion is very little is going to survive this. Well, and, you know, just thinking about that, you know, as far as regulation, the regulatory scheme of these things, remember the 1996 Telecom Act, right? Really, the whole idea was take a light touch to the internet and look where we are, <laughs> right? Some incredible things, no question about it, but also like nobody ever said, oh, you know, maybe we should think a little bit about this. And the reaction always is, well, you're going to stifle innovation. If you don't allow these people to do whatever it is they want, Ben, however it is they want, you're going to stifle innovation. And I think that, you know, to me, it's, um, where is it here? I wrote this down too. It's innovation to me now, he sort of equals bullshit, right? It's like, I want to do something. I don't want you to tell me whether or not I can. So I'm just going to call it innovation. And, you know, because the innovation that can and should occur either happens, one, to make money no matter what, or two, gets crushed by the big dogs to avoid having any competition whatsoever, right? So it's like, okay. If we're going to innovate, I'm the holder of this innovation and no one else can have it because I want to make the most amount of money. And if I have this great innovative idea, then Google or Meta or somebody, and I'm more often in the tech space, right? I'm not talking about building a better wheel or a better mousetrap, but it's like there's so much now. It seems like the only innovation that's allowed is by people who are already sort of in the game. Yeah, I think that's true. And innovation has always been used to commit fraud, right? Think of uh, the dot-com boom, in which that's an actually revolutionary technology. The internet actually changed so much, as evidenced by the fact that I'm using it right now to record this podcast with you from Brooklyn. But even then, when there was an actual revolutionary uh, technology underneath, so many people were using it for scams and frauds or just bad ideas that they stood to benefit from, and all they had to do was sell you stock in their company that wasn't going to go anywhere. So it's always been used that way. And I think we just need to understand that. And there are some trigger words or some words that to me are often indicative of fraud and they are innovation, again, vaguely defined. They are community. Anyone who's talking about community that doesn't actually exist and, and anything that's financial that involves a community is a very interesting thing. And I would say those two, although I do love the word trustless. That's my favorite word because it doesn't mean what they think it means. <laughs> they use it as like, you can trust the code. You don't have to trust people. But of course, people write the code. So you're just trusting the people that wrote it. So it's certainly trustless, but just not in the way they intended. So Ben, I'm going to let you go here in a minute because I've kept you too long. Where does crypto go from here? Well, there's more law enforcement action to come if I was a betting man. The SEC and the CFTC have sued Binance. Not only that, but succeeded in freezing some of their assets because they're worried that they could flee the country or escape the ability of law enforcement to get a hold of them. 
Binance is far and away the biggest crypto exchange. It just dwarfs every other exchange out there. It's been as much as three quarters of the volume. It's still half the volume. So if Binance were to go down, if the DOJ were to charge it with things like money alarm, all these Binance executives have suddenly left the job. If that were to happen, I think that would be a major, major blow to crypto. But the thing that people really need to understand, one of the things they need to understand is it doesn't matter what the screen says. The screen can say your Bitcoin's worth $25,000 a coin or whatever it is. Your Dogecoin is worth whatever. It doesn't matter. It's about the real money you put in. And then the real thing is getting the real money out. It's the simplest thing. Forget all the technology. Forget everything about it. So crypto will survive as a story for as long as people believe in it. That's the truth, barring lawmakers saying it's illegal. But if it is going to exist as a story, we need to make sure that people are not lying and we have to check them every step of the way. All right, Ben, before we let you go, where can we find you and Jacob online or just you online? And what else are you guys working on? Sure. So the book just came out July 18th. It's available wherever you want to buy books. Easy money. I am at Ben underscore McKenzie on X. And also I think I'm Mr. Ben McKenzie on Insta and threads. So we finished the book this spring. Jacob's back to his life as a reporter. And I'm working on a documentary because I filmed these knuckleheads. So uh, hopefully you can look for... I think it's a comedy set in the world of crypto is, I think, what it is. And it comes out, uh, well, hopefully it will come out next year. Well, great. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter or whatever they call it now, at Reed Galen on thread and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Ben McKenzie, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.